sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Sexual regulation and apology at the Toronto Police Service, and it's about the Project Marie and um, and uh, the uh, apology from the police service for the bathhouse raids. Um, and a lot of this is about sort of first sort of exploring uh, sort of queer world making in public sex, and then I'll talk a little bit about the apologies. Uh, in June 2016, Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders apologized for the 1981 bathhouse raids, a mass arrest that humiliated hundreds of men and ruined lives. Five months later, his apology rang hollow to many in Toronto's queer community when the Toronto Police Service raided Marie Curtis Park in Etobicoke, resulting in another mass arrest, this time through questionable police tactics, charging 72 men um, with unenforceable bylaw infractions that have long been held as unconstitutional. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter Toronto have called on the queer community to recognize racialized police violence, resulting in the expulsion of uniformed police officers from marching in the Toronto Pride Parade. The police have never apologized for racialized violence or widely discredited official policies like carding. Um, what is the function of an apology when the state continues to perpetuate similar violence um, for which it's apologizing, um, how is it received, for whom do the police apologize? Uh, so I'll just explore a little bit the uh, Mary Curtis uh, queer world making. Heteronormative coupling has long been the privileged example of sexual intimacy uh, in our culture, often associated with privatization, familialism, and sexual reproduction. The police crackdown in Henry Curtis Park relies on heteronormative bias as a way to justify a politics of shame. In the wake of Project Marie, we've heard from police and some residents about the need to protect families against rampant lewd behavior of deviant sexual intimacy between men. Their complaints tap into the vast power of sexual shame, disgust and moralism in the name of heteronormative intimacy. They make sex seem irrelevant or merely personal and privilege heteronormative conventions of intimacy in order to diminish the existence of non-normative and explicit public sexual cultures. Yet for gay male culture, many principal scenes of intimacy have been public spaces, tea rooms, uh, streets, bathhouses, public toilets, parks, sites, according to Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner, of counter intimacies that have long provided scenes of queer world making in counter publics. Whereas heteronormative forms of intimacy have been supported by cultures of reproduction, representation, legal structures, institutional support, domestic architecture, and the zoning of work and politics, and whereas queer intimacy has long been stigmatized subject to social opprobrium and criminal sanction, queer cultures found it necessary to cultivate counterpublics that support forms of effective, erotic, um, and personal living that are public in the sense that they're accessible, available to memory, circulate knowledge, um, and sustained through collective activity. Because heteronormative cultures of intimacy leave queer cultures especially dependent on ephemeral world makings in public space, queer cultures are particularly vulnerable to municipal regulations that aim to restrict counter-public sexual culture. While the mobility of these sites makes them possible, it also renders them hard to recognize as world-making because they are so fragile and ephemeral or trivialized as lifestyle. To understand them um, only as self-expression or as a demand for recognition would be to misrecognize the fundamental unequal material conditions whereby the institutions of social reproduction are coupled to the forms of dominant understandings of intimacy. 
The separation of public and private spheres, characteristic of modern liberal societies, does not limit the field of power over sexuality, but instead functions strategically to extend the reach of power and to multiply techniques of social control. The effect of sexual liberation has been not or not only to free us um, to participate in counter intimacies, and this is crucial to my later point, but to require us to express intimacy in ways that count as sexual freedom, according to a dominant heteronormative understanding of intimacy as private, delimiting where and when to draw the distinction between sexual and non-sexual expression. Sexual freedom in the name of liberty imposes on us a brand of liberty that constructs freedom as a privilege that we must, on pain of forfeiting, use responsibly and never abuse. That respectable gay man occasionally pandered to popular prejudices and uphold normalizing standards of matters of sex reveals the strength of cultural imperatives to maintain public respectability. They also assume they owe nothing to the sexual subculture they think of as sleazy, even though their success their way of living, their political rights would not have been possible but for the existence of queer world making they now despise. So um, when all of this happened I, at the Center for Ethics, I had sort of hoped that the response to Project Marie might be to take up Michael Warner's, thank you, Michael Warner's call for an ethics of sexual autonomy. Aware of the limits of the autonomous subject, Warner asks us to rethink the ethics of controlling someone else's sex when it's not harmful or coercive imposing one's own way of living on, uh, as a moral standard for others. It would be nice, Warner writes, if the burden of proof in such questions of sexual morality lay on those who want to impose their standard on someone else. For Warner, failure to recognize when sexual regulation comes down to a politics of sexual shame, loose policies pious and disingenuous about sex, cows individuals out of sexual dignity, involves silent inequalities, unintended effects of isolation, and a lack of public access. Sexual autonomy is more than freedom of choice, tolerance, and the liberalization of sex laws. It requires access to pleasures and possibilities since people do not know their desires until they find them. Moralism, on the other hand, can only produce complacent satisfaction in others' shame by taking for granted dominant forms of intimacy that privatize and isolate sexual pleasure. So for whom do the police apologize and why? It's important to remember that an apology is not a change in policy. It's not a change in police practice. From the perspective of the 72 men unconstitutionally arrested in Mary Curtis Park, not much has materially changed in police culture in the past 36 years. What has changed is the rise in respectability politics around queer sexuality that dislocates respectable gay men from the forms of counter intimacy and queer world making that made possible the galvanizing efforts of queers in 1981. In order to make sense of the police apology for bathhouse raids in the wake of Project Marie, given the obvious contradiction, we have to first recognize that such an apology necessarily exploits a, a respectability politics that disavows histories of queer world making. This form of heteronormative apologizing, one might argue, is intended to appeal to a sort of self-satisfied liberal sensibility of a large swath of heteronormative society that's happily, happily to pluralize homonormativity without any understanding of its decoupling from counter-intimacies. However, I would argue that there's potentially another benefit to the police for the police to exploit the ignorance of gay respectability politics, um, um, which is to incorporate gay men and women into a coalition that supports police practices against the threat posed by um, 
other groups that have similar complaints, including the intersectional politics of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Black Lives Matter Toronto includes a number of people who identify as queer and black. Understanding BLM Toronto's intersectional politics means understanding the ways in which queer people of color experience the police as both queer and racialized minorities. As a group consisting largely of queer people of color, BLM Toronto's opposition to violent police practices is as much about affirming queer world making as it is about affirming that black lives matter. Indeed, indeed, queer people of color and trans people of color in particular have played crucial roles in many of the galvanizing moments of queer history. It's within this, within this context that we come to understand BLM Toronto's call for the queer community to refuse racialized police violence as simultaneously a call on a respectable gay men to recognize that black people are queer people too. Their demand to expel uniformed police officers from marching the Toronto Pride Parade was not only a demand that white respectable gays refuse to be complicit in police violence that despoils black lives, it was also a refusal of the kind of fracturing identity politics that asks people to engage society's institutions as either black or queer. Conversely, the police apology in the wake of Project Marie is a call on respectable gay men to see practices as protecting their sexual freedom, but only insofar as it conforms to heteronormative forms of intimacy. Project Marie renders freedom as a privilege and sends a message to gay men that police protection is contingent. That's not an apology, it's a threat.